Welcome to the Special Generalist Podcast. Today's guest is a Bachelor of Business. He spent his time collegially wrestling NCAA Division II. He then transitioned his passion to become a co-head coach for the Matt Pack Wrestling Club in Bismarck, North Dakota. He concurrently occupies the professional position of financial advisor. He also works with his family to raise and maintain cattle. A productive and valued friend, Adam Lees. Thank you, thank you. <clears throat> yeah, so let's settle this pound-for-pound debate. No, I'm just kidding. We can ease into it. Adam's a good friend of mine from Bismarck. We've uh, actually had the pleasure of the last year doing a couple trips down to Georgia for a football game, and then we went to the Conor McGregor versus Poirier UFC fight. Uh, Longtime wrestling friend. We grew up wrestling. We were just over Christmas break watching us throw headlocks on one another on our old VHS tapes. So I've known Adam for a long time. And, of course, we both like UFC, and down in Georgia we had this heated debate. It's actually between me and my little brother as well. <laughs> yeah, um, I need to tune Brant in for a little bit of this. <laughs> phone a friend? Yeah, yeah. So I'm going to do my best to explain this. I'm going to try it. to define it, and I'm not going to straw man it. I'm not going to make it a weak argument. And then I'm going to explain my side of it and why there's a lot of subjectivity to it. Sure. Okay. All right, so the pound-for-pound debate, for those of you who don't know, in most sports that require weight classes, they create the classes as a structure to to basically make the individual weights more competitive and more of a fit between the different participants. You have different weight classes from wrestling to boxing to UFC fighting mixed martial arts, etc. And oftentimes, those wrestlers that are between multiple weight classes cannot participate against one another. You can't have a Floyd Mayweather boxing Mike Tyson. So the question was, or the debate was, whether cross-weight cross class wins and domination affect individual pound-for-pound rankings. And Adam and Brant's case was that the individual's dominance within a singular weight class much more graded individually purely off of that. And I was making the case that the breadth of dominance between multiple weight classes affects the overall pound-for-pound if an individual goes up a weight class, loses, and their pound-for-pound ranking goes down, then it obviously affects them, and that's a great case of Israel Adesanya. Not to mention, there's a, and this is one of the things I was thinking about, did I do a decent job of explaining your point? Is there anything you want to add on? No, I think that's spot on, and I think we're, I think we're getting to this. Just in the debate, whether or not it should hold place in in those rankings are those cross-divisional. They definitely do. I think me and Brandt's side of the argument was that the the pound-for-pound theory was created so that should never have to happen because the person in the heavier weight class in a combat sport should always have the upper hand. It's the reason heavyweights in both boxing and UFC are looked at as the baddest man on the planet is because they're expected to have an upper hand. So somebody that's in a lower weight 
shouldn't be expected to go up and win. And if they did, if they don't win up a weight, it shouldn't affect how they're rated on their dominance within their own specific weight class. So here's my contesting point. And it's because of this that I think that individual, maybe it's more honorable to run through your weight class and be dominant of that singular class. And this is someone like Habib Nurmagomedov. Yeah, Nurmagomedov. Yep, like a Kamara Usman who is currently the number one. But if you were to think about weight classes, and this is a common standard deviation, it's a bell curve, right? The more median of the weight classes are in the middle which is oftentimes the hardest and the, the strongest weight class yep. because there's more of an average of participants there. So the argument you laid out was that as you go up, it's harder, which is true. But there's also individuals that go down, which is cutting weight, and not all the time, not always do they do better at that placement. So you could, you could say that as you move closer to the center, it is harder. And I think that actually is the case in most instances, not always. If you're just a dominant wrestler, you're a dominant wrestler. But the actual depth of pool of individuals that you're pulling from statistically is much, you know, bigger. Yeah. So it, to me, the ability to also move laterally and dominate whichever direction you go, for example, if you're a 145 pounder going up to 155, but if you're also a 155 pounder going down to 145, it's also it, yeah. also if you dominate and win multiple championships. So I think overall it's a difficult one to assess. But at the end of the day, the, the heavyweight then always has the default of not being able to do that because they can't move down from 285 or what, however big they are. Yeah, as well as straw weight. As you say, right. like some people can cut weight or right. straw weights or, or fly weights don't have a, that opportunity as well. Does that at least make sense though as far as because the media... So my perspective is that, one, if you go after the hardest competition regardless of weight class, it's obviously showcasing. So I always, I just, I think it's a security to stay within that weight class, especially when you can beat everyone also. Is that correct? correct? My side of it is that the pound-for-pound pound rankings are in place so that nobody has to leave their weight class. It's the way to compare a 155-pound fighter to a 170-pound fighter without having to make them fight. Because in the grand scheme of things, everyone wants to know who's the best fighter on the planet, and you can't compare your flyweights to your heavyweights in any other way. Nobody can. Nobody's going to try to fight every single weight to say I'm better than the heavyweight. So it's the way in a relative aspect to compare the dominance that one person has at their specific weight class or division to somebody that they should or theoretically wouldn't ever be able to compete against. Now as you get closer and closer um, to that center, there is that large median from essentially 145 to 170 that those guys do have the opportunity to do that. But I would also say your my argument is that you are you're at a disadvantage to go up a weight class, give up size, be at a disadvantage, and expect that if you don't win, that has effect on your dominance at your own weight class, not at the weight class above you or below you. That affects the dominance that you have on your own weight class. So if it is put in place to assess your dominance 
at 155 pounds, Habib for prime example, probably the best hundred. You'll get into it with me, but in my <laughs> like opinion, the most dominant, best, right? Yeah, most dominant 155 pounder that at least we've ever been able to watch. And to think that these rankings were put in place to assess each fighter's dominance at their respective weight class. If he leaves his weight class and goes up to fight Kamaru Usman at 170 pounds, to me it doesn't make sense or it shouldn't affect how he's ranked based on his dominance at 155 pounds. But if he loses, I, he'll, but if he were to lose, he would lose his pound for pound ranking. Yes, exactly. That's why I'm saying it shouldn't hold place in the pound for pound ranking. It doesn't make sense because only them in the center median of that bell curve have the opportunity to do. So. We're not going to at. What if? Uh, Usman <coughs> cuts down to 155, and then he won't. beats. He can't. But, but, no, he's I at know, 170 for a reason. I know, but occasionally you get someone. I'm talking in theory, right? Use so your he, theory. He he cuts down to 55. Right. Same and, two and then, people. And then he then beats Habib at 155. So then, yeah, I, th- I mean, it diminishes. It that would diminish Habib's pound-for-pound ranking 100% because he lost. But would it increase Usman's? Theoretically, it shouldn't. Right. Would it? Would it? Yeah, right. 100%. That, but mean, it would. We've seen that. That's Correct. The, I, that's kind of my argument is that the the subjectivity of transfer across fighters, obviously you get coined with a specialty, right? So you get coined 155. Yeah. At that point in time, is that your coined class or are you much more transferable across them? One, let's say your competition is a measure of how good you are, maybe that weight class is just really bad. You, you dominate all the way through it. Is the, the measurement of how good you are as good as the competition, or is it actually how good you are? And that's, it's really difficult to essentially attend pound for pound when you don't know if that weight class is weak or not. That, that's what I'm getting at. And when you're talking about theoretical pound for pound, I get what you're saying. But really, it's just a rank order of the best fighter. Yeah, and I think you're spot on with how it's actually used. I get frustrated in the process that it's not used in the form that it was created. It's used differently. Izzy is the best example. From Izzy's class to where he fought Jan is a 20-pound jump, and Jan is a monster at that weight. He's enormous. That's asking a lot of a person where that same jump, though, for a flyweight to, to move 10 pounds is probably the same increment essentially based on the person's size. I just, I hate seeing those guys take a loss, lose credibility on their pound for pound ranking because of that. I don't. So if John Jones comes out and dominates and wins his first ma- his first fight at heavyweight, does he become pound for bum. pound best? I know, but does no, he No, absolutely not. Right, but he will be. No, pound for pound? Yeah, he's an undefeated fighter that has just, obviously he hasn't put in the, the amount of time, but I believe I think he's six right now. He hasn't fought in two years. So he, you're thinking he comes out heavyweight and he beats Sorrell, or, or I can't see that I over tomorrow. Yeah, I think if he comes out and and beats him, yeah. I mean that'll tell that. I, how about we'll just cap it at that and use that as a measurement to how the <laughs> pound for pound will be used. We already know how it's used. I still feel as he should be there, but he isn't. <clears throat> Granted, I like Usman a lot more, and I'm not going to argue him being at the top. Okay. I still think as a as a holistic me- like look at let's just say pound for pound is a measure of the best at 
at the current era in time. But I don't think that it is assessed that way. I think oftentimes the history of the individual, like you're saying clean slate, John Jones now is zero and zero at his respective weight class. There's no history that then adds to his pound for pound ranking, correct? No, I think there is. But that is essentially what you're saying. It's a clean slate. There shouldn't be anything that affects his wins at a lower weight class that affects his upper weight class because that's the only way to measure it objectively. Yeah, but in in that, I don't think anybody's ever climbed that list like that and been inactive as long as John Jones has been. Like, the people that are high on that list are active and they're competitive and competing very often. And maybe not always very often. A lot of them are belt holders, so it depends on when there's a title fight. But I don't think you can hold a spot high on that list without being active or with being as inactive as John has been. Okay, so I guess let's, I don't know. I I think the devil's in the details of this. We could go on and on, but I I think to be exactly objective, you, after that person has moved in a a new weight class, you're saying that they're zero and zero. They have to be. Correct. If they're not the, if they're not the same person that they were, when you move a weight class, he moves from 205, he's a, huge now he's not a 205 pounder having wins at heavyweight so Israel Adesanya at the weight class he went up is not a pound for pound ranking fighter at the weight class he is they should be coined separately but they are coined together yeah exactly that's fair you keep the parameters fit to the actual record then that's the case. It's just that if you're the belt holder, I think oftentimes you get ranked on the pound for pound automatically. If, you're, yeah. if Izzy goes up and wins it now, is he one of the top five because he's one and one at that weight class? I don't know. You're, you get starting to split in hairs, but yeah. it's interesting how they decide it. Absolutely. Before, before you move on from the combat sports topic, I want, I've, and I've asked a number of people in our group, but I don't know that we've had the conversation. What are your thoughts on positive PED tests? Positive PED tests and then allowing them to fight, you're saying? Or yeah. just... So they, they test positive and then they're allowed to participate after the fact? Correct. Based off of a intermediary person that subjectively says, this fight's a go? Then, or is it a person that is tested or could be a false positive scenario? Yeah, um... Just in the scheme, Izzy's been popped more than once. John's been popped more than once. I have a hard time, like, still looking at them in their weight class to be like, oh, yeah, they are just naturally or that much better than their competition. And I even think about it a lot on the pound-for-pound rankings. One of the big things that, and that's going back to saying that I'm not upset that Izzy's not where he was, is one of those things is, I can be as dominant as I want to in my respective weight class, but if I'm using PED, and for all we know, 92% of the UFC is using them. I have no idea. But once somebody has been popped or publicly been accused or proven to be, by the UFC's rules, cheating, I hate that essentially they can let one, one fight where they should be scheduled go by and they're fighting right away again like it never happened. I understand the money side of it, but... 
I guess I would have to understand more of the science of the maintenance or the ability for the fighter to maintain the gains that they had received yeah. from the PED itself. I don't know specifically if you were to take something and, and that actually long-term created a gain that massively compounded into what you are now. But if, if it's the case that you do take it, you, you get off of it like a, what's his name, blonde hair, smaller guy. Yeah, TJ Dillashaw. So the PED he was taking, though, I could, I could be wrong, was more about stamina and endurance. And I, I can imagine that when you take that and you stop taking it, that you don't continue to get the effects of endurance and stamina, like a oxygen doping type of scenario. Where Yeah. So I, I do think that there is some technicalities that probably the average watcher does or doesn't know. Do, you can... As long as there's not subjectivity around money, I think that probably corrupts it. But if, if it's actually USADA that's saying, yeah, there's no long-term gain from him doing this or not yeah. doing this. Whether hormones were up and then they got regulated, yeah. So I, I do that. think it's a little bit more nuanced. I think you're taking the stance that if you're a cheater, you're a cheater. <laughs> and you kind of contaminate And, you and contaminate I don't want it to be that that's my take that hard because it's not fully that hard. I, I just think it gets interrupted with the business side of the sport more than it should. Right. Like the money aspect of who the person is more than it should. Maybe we should just let them take as much as they want and just see what happens. Hey, I'm, I'm okay with it. That is another interesting argument where it's at what level is certain... At, at what level, where's the margin of performance enhancing, whether it's protein or something that's a natural substance, is you see a lot of the, the peptides that people are taking and all these other things. There's all sorts yeah. of new apps. It's going to become a huge deal, I think. I don't know. It's, it's going to get increasingly difficult to test and measure probably just natural forms. Look at Yoel Romero. That guy does not look like he's... Yeah. He looks like an alien. That guy's a freak. That guy has to go down as one of the best athletes on this planet. I agree. He's a, been to two Olympics, Olympic silver medalist, and more than 20 years ago, and he's still fighting in the most combat-enhanced sport in the world. He has a, he's a freak. It's awesome. I'd imagine if you took his, like, DNA sample, it'd be like... <laughs> little like molecules with biceps on it yeah for sure <laughs> i actually think i'm going to keep on the thread of, of kind of combat and wrestling i think a lot of people potentially within the wrestling community may listen to this and might be interested to, to hear more about some of your philosophies practical assumptions or whatever and i can try to take that, generalize it, explain it to others, maybe not so niche to the wrestling community, but to me, wrestling has provided a ton. It's a very technical and amazing sport from a from philosophical to mechanics to any, any layer that you want to look at it. I guess first question, just to lay the, the foundation, what has wrestling, the sport of wrestling, given to you and continue to? I know that's a broad question, but just paint your perspective on wrestling. Yeah, and I'm sure it's something that a lot of people would say a similar or state a similar case for their sport. But I've talked to our coaches, I've almost anyone that I've talked to, as much as I can think back on it, I do have wrestling to think that. The college I went to, the internship I got, the job I have, all goes back to ties with wrestling and 
I can look at essentially 90% of the opportunities that I have, I can probably tie it back to needing to write a thank you letter to the sport of wrestling. And it, it definitely has opened a lot of opportunities. How about this podcast? <laughs> there you go. Yeah. <laughs> First and foremost. Yeah, I guess between me, my brother, my family as well, all the traveling that our family's done, I, we're not huge a huge traveling family or a vacation, a lot of that was wrestling, people we've gotten to meet, things we've gotten to see, opportunities that we have. Like I said, it's something everybody would probably relate to the sport that they put the most time into, but I think wrestling's such a tight niche community and the people within it are, are very giving around the country up to the highest levels and definitely has provided a lot of opportunity that definitely very grateful for. But What do you think as far as the and, and this isn't, I think you're trying to throw some equity on all sports, but I think wrestling is like the Navy SEALs of the various branches of military. It sure. is one of the most gruesome sports you can get into at a, not gruesome, but demanding. From a dutifulness, from an industri- industriousness to what are the things that it's carried over for you. A lot of times they say grit isn't transferable, but I think once you've wrestled, there's no question that grit doesn't transfer into other aspects of, of your life. Oftentimes, like yeah. the Navy SEALs you, you listen to. Yeah. One thing that I guess has stuck with me a lot that, and maybe it's more of the the drink and the Kool-Aid type of thing. But one of the things that I've heard from one of my favorite coaches I've had, obviously one of the coaches you've had, is just by the time you're done with your wrestling career, tough times mean something different to everybody, right? Tough times for some is breaking their fingernail. But I think it's I think some of that just understanding of what's actually a tough time and what actually puts stressors on a person is a lot different by the time you're done with it. And I think it's some of the mental battles that people face cutting weight. And I think that's a huge, so to speak, mental toughness piece of the sport is carrying on your day-to-day life during some of those toughest weight cuts, being malnutrition, dehydrated, some of those things. And I think there's a lot of life lessons learned or character built in those time periods. But yeah, one of, I think the thing that always stuck with me the most is that the definition of a tough time was definitely reevaluated or has a different meaning to people at the end of that career. And like you said, I, I don't want to even the playing field on every sport, but I do think it is that way too. And it's relative to people's sport. Everyone, every wrestler wants to say that wrestling is the toughest sport, but I say the same thing. People in other sports say, I see your guys' workouts, I couldn't do that, but I would be the first to say I couldn't do that. I, I watch the cross-country runners, and I'm like, not a chance. I There's no chance I could go a day in your guys'. And I, I think that's reciprocated because it's something that you've just done and has become normal since I was four years old. So it was just what I thought a going to practice was rather than how it's perceived by maybe the outside world. There's, one, there's a couple things I actually think I could expand on. I think are interesting when you talked about the cutting weight it seems very weird to be voluntarily committed to making your life worse for the sacrifice of later and this might be a false dichotomy but I I, oftentimes you're in between these two areas of kind of hedonism and which is essentially the striving for pleasure as a source of happiness giving into the sweetness of things the sugar you know kind of the McDonald's, the things that are very, 
quick hitters, right? Quick hit pleasures versus what's a little bit more old fashioned is the ascetic version of life, which is oftentimes what monks do is they forego all pleasures. Like one of my favorite podcasters, Lex Friedman, right? He does this thing where he does a 72 hour fast and it's a practical thing to, to elaborate on what the world means to him. And that may seem really weird, but once yeah. you, let, let's say you're in between these two guardrails of absolute privation where you're like starving versus absolute pleasing, absolute everything is given to you. If you were to create a dichotomy between those two things, basically the easy way versus the hard way in, in a practical sense, oftentimes when you push yourself voluntarily into the practical hard times, when hard times do come, it seems like the stress level is accommodated for that. And yeah. our grandparents were like, you you guys are so coddled, right? You guys have, you guys, you millennials, you Gen Zers, you don't know what a tough time is. And it's partially true. Like when you're writing down every single grocery item that you're purchasing to account for it because you need to make sure you have enough money for the next house payment, et cetera. I think now in a world of abundance, we have to do the opposite, right? So instead we have loads of sugar all over the place. We have fast food that can literally be delivered to your doorstep. I don't even have to get up to get food. We literally went from a time in our life where we were hunter and gatherers and we had to spend all day just to get food to now where I can lay in bed all day, watch cartoons and order food to my door. And we're talking about hard times during pandemic. It's pretty cushy if you really boil it down to what it is. To bring it back to the wrestling piece, most people don't know this but like when you're dieting or you're voluntarily disciplining yourself you, you there's this like sense of freedom after that you feel like you can accomplish a lot more but then on the opposite end i think i see a lot of wrestlers that that fall into after the fact like where they're like oh i don't have to ever do this again give me as much pancakes and syrup as i can possibly see but i think one of the cool thing about you is, is you've continued to use those those philosophies forward do you did did that kind of make sense as far as its explanation yeah i think you portrayed a little better to most that haven't been on the inside of doing it most of their life and i think that was a good breakdown of it and it it is I, still today there's a lot of those things with the coddling and i loved it my my college head coach as well he was big on that as looking at his career while he's still coaching, we have it so much easier. And to look at a sport that's looked at as being very tough and have somebody tell you that it, it is very easy for you guys is definitely eye-opening because it's the same thing as we go through day-to-day -day life. The simplicity of our life is extremely enhanced compared to the generations before us. And it's the same thing with the sports that people used to look at as the toughest, most grueling sports those same people look at it as how much easier we have it today. And I don't disagree with them. We definitely do. But it's, it's interesting. You can even use it like, to the time. Right. It's, there's absolute privation. So you're basically comparing it to the entire timeline of, of existence. And obviously times are much better now than they were 200 years ago. Like I said, in a, in a world now where you need privation to keep hungry, and oftentimes you see there's a camp of people that are doing things such as cryotherapy, sauna, dieting, or doing very voluntary periods of time where they do a fast. Yeah. Religions Collective are very... Suffering. 
Yeah, and religions are very big on this as well. Obviously, you have your Lent period in which you forego some for this sake. And I think in the modern world, as religion has tailored its way its way in, in the common household, generation by generation, that piece is missing. And I, I think it's a practical thing. It's really easy. But I always, and my mom always goes, you're freaking crazy for going into uh, cryotherapy. But it's a stress gainer. It levels my ability to withhold stress and it has all sorts of scientific reasoning we live in like air-conditioned rooms everything is regulated life is pretty easy and it it just it's nerfing the corners around everything is my perspective yeah absolutely yeah i think that uh elongated explanation but i think you hit it up. i just want i i want to sell people like i think one i think people think wrestlers are crazy for cutting weight two they want to know in the head of why do tough people get tough, I think. And I think there's a value on the opposite end of prosperity that's privation, that voluntary privation. You always hear about intermittent fasting is another one. You intermittent fast yeah. and scientifically you become more focused and narrowed in on your day. Yeah. Um, I think but I think Rogan is, and I hate pump Joe Rogan, I, just because there's a lot of people that have different opinions of him than I do. But I think one of the things that's so cool about what Joe Rogan has molded his life into is that so many times these people that have those pieces that are so used to the selective suffering, a wrestler, a mixed martial artist, those kind of things have been doing it their whole life, so they're very accustomed to it. Where Joe Rogan was essentially the complete opposite until the day that he found that, and he always talks about the essentially the hour after you you finish whatever that selective suffering is, whether it's cutting weight, whether it's fasting for a period of time. And he does such a good job of saying that one hour period when he's done is what drives him to be a better person day in and day out and achieve more and be more and more successful. And it was something that he didn't find until later in his life. And I think that's something that's very cool. And I hate, like I said, pumping him up because he lives a different life than most of us. It's the same argument as the David Goggins thing. I mean, it, yeah, great. The guy did a lot of great things. I have a hard time. I have a hard time trying to put myself in the same place because I live a completely different life. There's no way that I could try to do the things that he did. Where a guy like Joe Rogan essentially didn't have it early in his life and essentially learned it and thanks selective suffering for his success. I think that's a unique um, situation, but one that I've found to be very cool to listen to yeah i agree there's another thing i want to talk to you about i have a couple wrestling points i have this idea about wrestling or something i learned from wrestling myself and it was the fact that you don't compete to win you you compete to see if you will lose and what i mean by that is it's it's the only measure of you knowing whether you're good or right or wrong and why i say that is this is if you were to win, if you're to win and be wrong, if you just are beating up on the weak guy consistently, you're inflating a false sense of yourself, right? <laughs> so oftentimes when you're going out to wrestle and compete, it's if you're in North Dakota and you're whipping up on everyone and you all of a sudden have this huge ego that I'm the biggest, baddest guy in town it's a false sense of, of reality because you're not actually competing against a, a proper measure of how good you actually are. Yeah. So to do that, you have to be willing to compete to lose. And 
you should be searching for that loss because until you search for that loss, you can't, you, you don't, it's almost like it grounds the reality of how good you actually are. Does that kind of make sense? Yeah, and that's another one that I think is, it's very true, but it's relative or it's age-oriented or success-oriented is maybe the right key. I think when that's the case when we're young, it may burn kids out. But as soon as we find that success that so many times, young kids especially, when they find the success, they struggle to be driven to get better day in and day out in the practice room. And that's that point or that fine line that now you start seeking out those opportunities or finding the guy that can beat you, finding the 10 guys that are better than you, 20, whatever it might be, because that's what, I mean, wrestling is a a sport that losing stings. I've never enjoyed a loss in that sport. And that's... I think, I was going to say, I think you're right, actually, because when I was younger, I was in a part of a group that I was larger and I was young. So I was wrestling kids that were relatively easier for me. So as I'd win, I'd get a false sense of over time of winning and then as soon as sure. middle school hit the the gates fl- flew open and I wasn't used to that sense of losing right sure on its head though if you're trying to get encourage kids to wrestle you do want them to win because then they're hooked on it and I think there's actually a, a study between mice they did a study on mice when they would like rough and tumble wrestle that the losing rat or mouse or whatever had to at least win 30% of the time to stay engaged. So if the, the losing rat consistently lost, they didn't want to play anymore, or if they just were a loser. So it's an interesting, it's an interesting contrast but, to And oftentimes it's the same with the guy that never loses, or the, you know, call them rats. A lot of times they don't find the same joy in it. And I don't know, I know how to relate that to wrestling, but outside of the background work, the practices, all this stuff that goes into it, I wouldn't know the philosophy behind that, but I think that's a huge driving factor in sports in general. If you win all the time and you're bored, that's because you're bored. But if you're competing against a threshold that's way too high for you, you're going to be anxious, you're going to be overwhelmed. It's just, it's way, way too much. And I think that actually... Um, folds into my next question if you were to favor your practicing style or your learning style within wrestling are you more of the individual that likes to be in more of a flow state where the threshold of basically of that anxious issue resolution is also met with the, the exact level of skill that you have so you're just like locked in rolling around exploring lost within it or is it the hard-nosed, intense session with repetitions, continuously doing it over and over and over again until you basically feel like you're unbelievably proficient in that? Yeah, that's actually a really interesting topic, and it's one that I've been over with a number of people. Um, if you're asking me, I would say that the the flow state or flow wrestling is much more beneficial to me at this point. The hard nose side, the repetition thing, the whole don't practice it till you get it right, practice it till you can't get it wrong type of mentality holds a place in mental toughness and creating that in an athlete. But I think there's a lot more education. People seek the education side of the sport more in the flow state because there is a lot less of the anxiety-driven mindset in that flow state you go into it trying to be open-minded and learn, and I think that's much more beneficial for high-level athletes. I think 
a lot of the times certain programs run in the situation where they don't know how to incorporate both and they go one or the other and both of them have their upsides both of them have their downsides and I think teaching the group or your athletes that there's a big difference in the two but they both hold place so that the athletes understand that because the kids that don't understand that won't even attempt to learn in that other space. So when I got to college, the guys that absolutely hated hard drilling would completely put up a mental block and they wouldn't let that be beneficial to their repertoire when they would go to compete. If they thought uh, flow wrestling was better for them, that was the only place that they would open their mind to let themselves try to benefit. And I think as you get farther and farther in the sport, the flow situation... It seems like it, it, it opens up the boundaries between the possibilities and the interactions between correct. the wrestling. Yeah. You, you can obviously, you can oftentimes see funky wrestlers that are very creative, oftentimes are very familiar with that state and innovative <clears throat> in that state. But I also think, like you had said, that there's a level of repetition that makes you proficient enough to even get to a place where you're in a takedown situation. You have to you have to have the nice takedown and setup to get there in the first place. I've always been interested about it. I think if I were taught that from an, an early onset, just because I'm a conceptual person, I think I would have respected and understood the need for that. I think if you have a, and I've learned this as well with training at my workplace, that you oftentimes start with the most nar- the narrowest thing possible for the lowest entry level person. It's okay. Here's step A. Here's step B. Try that. Have success with that. Do it a hundred times. So after you do that, now you can move on to the next thing. It's it's much more it's much easier to transfer knowledge between two people when I tell you here this is what a half Nelson is. Let's just learn the half Nelson, not the entire collection of, of pieces that go around around that move between a turn, pressure, taking them down, all these different things that are essentially a combination and, and add to the complexity. You're trying to take a bite-sized piece and give it to a younger kid, which oftentimes you have to drill repetitively. My brain often works in the reverse, though, where I like to understand the whole uh, picture and analyze it as far as if I were to do this combination of things, or an example is, okay, let's say I have three funnels of basically, these are my go-to situations in my setups, right? If I can expand that funnel so that I can pull people into what I'm good at, that to me, let's say I have three go-to funnels, and it's a system, and then I try to expand on ways to get people into my style of wrestling or whatever. I think that those types of things I never was, I never thought of at the time, mm-hmm. but actually from general understanding of training and all these other things, I was actually able to apply that. But I'm not actually applying it now. I'm not wrestling. But what do you think about that? And you're obviously a, a, a coach now. Um, yeah. Your experience, um, your old coaches and then trying to find the right balance per the individual kid. Yeah, and that is tricky too, because I think part of it is level of education. You now have an understanding that's the type of learner that you are, and that's how things work for you, where I can't go into our 
club practice and teach an eight-year-old that that's how he needs to be able to think or understand because they are very task-oriented, yes or or no, right or wrong type thing. And even for the young guys, I think, and we kind of got into this a little bit one time that we were talking, is I find or I believe that big picture thinkers or those kind of people that learn and think in that type of manner have a lot more success in the sport than the people that are very analytical. And I'm a super analytical person as well, like yourself, and I find that... Well, let, okay, first, let's <clears throat> let's define the term analytical. Analytical <clears throat> as in detail-oriented? Yes, very detail-oriented. But even to, to the point of, right... Technical, and, you're saying? Yeah, so put an opportunity in front of somebody. The big picture thinker is just going to know, okay, this is my move 100%, I just take it. The analytical thinker is the detail-oriented person wants everything to be perfect that they've practiced and structured to be that way before they'll essentially let themselves go. And we see a lot of people just say, hey, when these guys get in competitions, they just can't let it fly. It's just they hold themselves back in practice. They score a million points. They do all this. But when they get in competition, they freeze up. So that would be very similar to conscientiousness, cautiousness, which is the essential analysis paralysis is what you're detailing, right? To level the grounds there, I think you're right. Big, so big picture thinkers are much more creative. They're much more abstract, which is funny because that's most people at work tell me I'm that. But the ability to balance between the level of detail up to the big picture is extremely important. Let's just say the big picture is the ability to see the holistic idea of what it is, just like the totality of it where the technical person is very detail-oriented and and is diving down to that level of detail. Correct. And even just taking a step backwards, I think the people that are so successful with that flow state or flow wrestling are the big picture type people. Creative types. And I think I understood the type of learner that I was and knew that's the opposite of me. So I found much more growth later on in my career in a flow state of practice because it forced me into some more of that open-mindedness, big picture strategy of the sport, which is contrary to what my normal or regular style, so to speak, was. And I found a lot more growth or progression in that where I think a lot of the, maybe the open-mindedness or the creative thinkers, they saw those pieces and some of the structured drilling, things like that, later in their career may benefit them more. So I think there is a fine line, and you have to know your athlete to that extent as well. It's so let's tie this, I'm going to say, let's tie this into my theme of the special generalist. Let's just say those big picture wrestlers that are much more creative and are, have the ability to see the, the full picture are the generalists. So yep. they're oftentimes trying a thousand different moves at a rate that's way higher than the individual who's the specialist who do, wants to drill that one move repetitively with detail over and over again. Yeah. And my entire point of this podcast, too, is to, one, have respect for the other party. Two, that when you merge those two and you optimize them, you see levels of progression. I've seen it in a, as an analogy in so many different domains. But like you had said, if you're trying to identify what this person's personality type is or what they have a filter to see, you you can see it. Kids, you can see it from right away, whether the kid is much more of a person that that likes the detail, will sit there, 
and, and just drill it over and over again versus the kid that's just trying all sorts of wacky moves without any structure, right? Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. So one of the things that Adam uh, also does in his profession, he's a financial advisor, and oftentimes we have a variety of conversations. He says that my consultation is always very irregular because I'm asking all sorts of things to a level of detail, big picture, et cetera, macro, micro. So what I want to do is take some of our conversation pieces and make practical insights for individuals listening, maybe define them if you aren't already familiar. Try not to talk down to people by any stretch of the imagination, but we'll just talk about concepts. And I guess to start, let's just use the 20 to 35 demographic what is the best strategy for investing? That's a good question because I think it's one of the first questions that I always get, especially with young people, is what's the right thing to do? And maybe there's not always a right answer to that. But excuse me, one of the things that I know that I've found to be the most beneficial and, and is used worldwide is the theme of dollar cost averaging. And all that is making sure that we are investing money on a structured amount of time. So whether it's monthly, by week, staying away from just putting money into the market once a year in large lump sums because of the time frame or time horizon ahead of us. If we're looking over the course of a lifetime, whether we're talking age 50, 60, retirement, so on and so forth, maybe it's all the way out to legacy planning. We have so many years ahead of us that we don't want to miss the good days in the market. And there's a whole bunch of studies out there that are going to show us if we miss just the best three days in the market of each year, how much it can change our final returns when we are 50, retirement, legacy planning, those kind of things. And I think that's probably the number one that I would say on a strategic standpoint is just make sure whether it's $25, $50, or up to whatever it might be, just make sure that you're being strategic about same dollar amount on a same set schedule. Um, the one other piece that I would tell people in that 20 to 35 age range is Hopefully, in that age range, we are not making the most amount of money that we're going to be making in our career. We should always be earning the least amount as our experience in the industry and whatever our industry is increasing. So with that being said, we should always be in our lowest tax bracket each year of our working career. So early on, we should be in a much lower tax bracket today than we're going to be when we're 30, when we're 50, when we're 60, yada. Being so, I suggest to everybody, if we're wanting to invest, if we have any interest in investing in retirement at this point to be using a Roth segment, whether it's your Roth IRA, some employers offer a Roth 401k. If those are available to somebody, take advantage of them. Seek out somebody to invest in a Roth IRA if you have any ambition to start saving for retirement, which I think is a great idea. I think there's never a too early point for that. But when we're young, pay our taxes. We don't know what the tax code could look like in 40 years. It'll probably be much higher to pay off to onset for now. Um, Correct. Yeah, I think the dollar cost averaging is a diversification of timing is really what it is. You're yeah. essentially saying that we're going to take every day and average it out with the assumption that it's going to increase over time no matter what. Which, yeah, and that's, it's an interesting way to put it is it, it is it's diversification of time and essentially taking the variability of time out of the equation. Right. So it essentially elongates and just says, okay, we're going to 
understand that this is going to increase with the assumption of this. The One of the things that I, I like within my mental framework of investments, whether it be obviously money, skill acquisition, whatever it may be, I oftentimes think of the difference between diversification versus basically a narrow single scope area, whether you have all your money in one bucket, for example. A lot of times people going into single stocks, right, they'll try to go heavy, they'll put all their money in Bitcoin or whatever it may be. Um, not saying I'm not an advocate for Bitcoin or we can touch on that, but I think what people try to do is not understand the ability to diversify one time, diversify asset classes, divert, you know, understand that when the market is low to have money in a specific thing that doesn't get affected or isn't correlated with the market. Or if it's a high, low interest time, what does that affect? And understanding that you're more adaptable in the long run when you do have that. And like you had said, like I said dollar cost averaging allows for that. I think a lot of times people try to outsmart the market and they go, oh, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to wait to buy my house when it crashes because everyone in 08 after it crashed, they expected that would happen. There's some people that are smart enough to do that, but from a starting out standpoint, you'll be much more thankful when your uncorrelated returns aren't affected if one goes, right? Yeah, and it's kind of cool as just as listening um, to you, one of the things that you've explained is what we refer to as the box theory. And the box theory is a box that has, it's segmented into three pieces. And we have our home run bucket, which is for most people it's, somebody that owns a business, a farm or ranch, or they are investing in somebody that is has a specialty that they believe in so much, but it's a it's a make it or break it type of investment. A lot of times that's where people hold their cryptocurrencies, things like that, where it's either this option is going to make us our largest returns or we might lose 100% of it. So, high risk, right? High risk, yep. high reward. Yep. So any business owner, farmer, or rancher, their highest returns is reinvesting in themselves. In a right. bad year, it's also the possibility for the, the lowest return or the worst return that we could see. The second segment of that box is our growth portion. We're still looking for higher returns. We're accepting risk in the market, but we're starting to build in some diversification. So it's our retirement funds, and I guess all I mean by the diversification part is we are segmenting how we're invested in a number of different stocks or mutual funds, portfolios, things like that, where our the sky isn't the limit anymore, but we're also putting that bottom layer on the fact that we're not going to completely lose ourselves as well. So mutual funds, brokerage accounts, ETFs, all those things that fall in there, we want to accept some risk because especially when we're young, the market volatility is our friend. And to be, I don't want to call it naive, but to have the mental block to just say, hey, I don't want to take any risk, we can look at annualized returns and see that if we hold something long enough, we there isn't, in that segment, there isn't the risk of just losing our money. And then the third segment is our safe money, and it's our non-market correlated assets, and that can go all the way down to money sitting in a bank account. Obviously, <coughs> people that are trying to want, wanting to fight inflation and not be like losing purchasing power to inflation don't want to hold a bunch of money in a bank account that's earning them a tenth of a percent. But all the way up to anything that doesn't have market correlation, when the markets are down, it doesn't affect our accounts whether it's bonds, CDs, things like that, that aren't correlated, have a huge place in our picture because when we need money in a down market, that's where we go. It creates investment opportunities in down markets. And if we're able to segment those three 
three places long term we start to build that bulletproof picture and I just thought it was cool that essentially that was what you were explaining or the road you were going down without explaining it that way. And you can apply that to essentially your income stream. Let's just say not necessarily where you store your obviously wealth, but more of the idea of, okay, I want to become a technician in this field and I'm earning $120,000 this year. Let's just say this, you're a technician, right? The, the problem with that is is that the, the probability that will become either automated or replaced with something in alternative is very high. So granted, you are very singular, and that is also why unions are very prominent in very specialty um, areas. My mom was, went into computer programming. She got an associate's degree. The, the computer programming that she has that doesn't even exist anymore. So your high return is there if it hits. You have to find your niche and it works. And then there's obviously the diversification where you have a subset set of skills that oftentimes makes you more adaptable into market conditions. So let's say you need, you're, you're very good at writing and you take a class, quick class on writing, and you become a journalist, or you yeah. get an entry-level position, you just have the ability to do said thing. Nonetheless, we can pull it back into to money, is that there's a level of diversification at every level, asset classes, income streams, you can, and, and then you start to get tactical, of course, when you probably get older and have more money with tax accounts. I know life insurance has non-taxable HSA, stuff like that, and those are all things that spend eight hours of your day on Google and just start reading, visit someone like you, start talking about, like you had said, if you earn more money later, you're going to be obviously taxed at a higher rate. So those are things that you're already missing out on by not putting the same money in a different bucket, essentially. Yeah, absolutely. And one of the things that I think I've noticed very quickly in the industry is that People are very almost regretful when they learn compounding interest is the biggest thing that people are uninformed about. I think the, the biggest thing a young person could do is go to Google and type in the rule of 72 and learn about compounding. So many times if I meet with anybody that's in the middle of their working career and has prolonged getting started on some of these uh, financial planning strategies is just realizing how much they missed out on. And in the middle of our life, we might look at those accounts and they're not going to knock us out of our chairs and they're not going to look beautiful. But we know that with compounding interest, those early stages and years aren't going to be very exciting. But long-term nearing retirement into retirement is where we see the huge growth. And, and one year there does a substantial amount compared to a year early on when we're contributing. And I think it's something Right, because just, it's it's exponential, right? It's the kind of the old fable where... If I gave you a million dollars versus a penny that doubles every day, which would you take? Yeah. And most times people think linear like that or it's when it's actually multiplication, two turns into four, four turns into to 16, et cetera. And I guess, like you said, not a lot of people understand that concept. I think a big one too with that is, is that when we're young, especially if people start families at a young age, there's so much going on in their life that it's always a it's always number 11 on your top 10 list of priorities. Everybody knows that it's important. It's just life's busy. Young age kids, things like that, it's very hard to save money, right? Our expenses are as high as they're going to be in our lifetime. And if we haven't structured certain saving saving habits, things like that, by that point a lot of times we aren't coming around to it till 35, 40 into our young 40s. And by that point, we have a heck of a lot of catching up. And more times than not, 
to you know, hit your main retirement goal. It's not going to happen by that age. But that happens. Look back towards our parents' ages. Starting a family normally started at a much younger age. And today there is a lot more 35 to 40-year-olds in the world that have not started planning or saving for retirement. Anyone that's that age that didn't have a 401k provided probably hasn't started doing anything. And I think it's, it's interesting to see that kind of age of starting a family and things like that has moved back. And I think it has increased young adults' knowledge in the financial market, which I think is pretty cool. And it'll be cool to see going forward. Yeah, I'd agree. I think, one, the ability to access resource and information is much higher. But with that, of course, comes whether it's, I don't want to say pseudo, I've read a handful of different books. In in what probably some individuals that are listening to this probably are going to think, oh, this is all common sense. But in all reality, the majority person probably does not know these concepts relatively. And it's if you're listening to this, Google diversification, the holy grail of diversification. Google Roth IRA, Google 401k, Google ETFs, Google mutual funds, Google life insurance term cash accounts. But again, going back, what I know we've talked about this, and I think this is an interesting point that I can tie probably three or four things into, but what, why is, why is it also dangerous to fall into one camp too strongly when it comes to financial advice? For example, like a Dave Ramsey? I figured the Dave Ramsey one was coming, and I don't want to go down a rabbit hole because I'm pretty sure you've heard me take that rabbit hole. And I guess first, there are a number of things that Dave Ramsey does that I agree with, especially on on the risk protection side of things and family security, those kind of things. He does a good job of the the biggest thing that he that I don't think it's right to say. If you don't want to put work into financial planning, just go listen to Dave Ramsey. Is Dave Ramsey is very for the middle class that, and I shouldn't just say the middle class, but it's people that are more so paycheck to paycheck and they're just getting by and they're happy with that. They don't want to make, I shouldn't say maybe they don't want to, but they're not going to make all the progress that others may have the opportunity to. He's I was going to say, I always thought that his total money makeover was from the the bottom to the middle class, right? Yeah. And I don't mean that condescendingly. I mean that he's essentially saying build an emergency fund, like literally just build up a cash account, do the small things. And then I always thought rich dad, poor dad was middle class to to upper class, which yeah. is in terms like sometimes not attainable for everyone unless you're at a point in which you can. So it's yeah. it's an interesting point. Sorry, I didn't mean to cut you off. No, you're good. And he's caught a lot of criticism on it on essentially the effect of he's keeping the middle class the middle class. Right, the ideas that he is suggesting to these people are not allowing them to move up to some of those other thresholds of income or opportunity later in life. And some of that just has to do with structure of debt reduction compared to investing. Right, One of his number one pieces is that we should pay down almost all of our debt before we even start saving for retirement. But if we have the opportunity to incur debt at 3% and have the same opportunity to average an 8% rate of return in the market long term, we're miles ahead rather than, hey, let's put all of our extra income towards this 3% interest rate that we are took out a loan on when we don't need to. And I understand debt is a stressor. 100%, I, I hate debt as much as the next p- person, but just educating yourself on the fact that 
debt creates leverage for us, and it's not always a bad thing. Now, there are high interest rate debts that we need to pay down, like credit cards and things like that. Right, and I, I think it's a great exa- it's a great explanation that the same contention I have with him as well, where he thinks all debt's bad debt, which oftentimes the only way to increase our leverage to invest in a business, to invest in a house, to invest in things, that invest in assets, you may have yeah. to do that. I do agree, though, with the fact that the access to debt to buy non-income producing assets or things that are, again, back into that pleasure-seeking camp, like a TV, for an example, with the idea that financing is is a smart way to do that. But like you had said, financing also enables more liquidity for investment opportunities when they come and happen. So when you're constantly just paying down debt with the cash on hand that you have, you're basically eliminating the potential returns that you could have outside of that, which I think that's spot on. If you were to to think about 3% minus 8% and then take that compounding over the course of time versus just constantly taking your money and paying down your debt until it's yeah. paid, then of course you're limiting the opportunity for that compounding down the line. He also has a huge emphasis on cash, which I'm not a huge proponent of, especially within times like now. I think we're stuck within a rock and a hard place. I'm oftentimes in the camp of Ray Dalio, where more of a big picture idea of where we are from a debt to income point, what things are happening, what people are buying, what people are spending. We can't increase spending enough while at the same time inflation is going crazy, sucking up all those individuals you said in the middle class that are saving their cash on hand. I guess that's part of my take. What do you think um, of our current situation? Do you think that the Fed's intent to heighten interest rates will happen? Do you think it's going to decrease that, you know, decrease in inflation? I know that in the last report, they said it's not transitory. Yeah, I, I love the conversation because as far up the chain to experts as you can go, you'll hear the common theme from all of them is we have no idea what the Feds want to do. We, we know what the Feds say that they want to do. I, I think in 2022 alone, there's no way that we don't see one, possibly two market pullbacks. And the next 10 years, I don't think there's any way we can go without stagnation at some point in there. But they have a lot of, they have a lot of opportunity. I do think that we'll see interest rates rise. I don't know that it's going to happen very fast. That's one that I think a lot of people have a lot of varying opinions on. But I think the interest rates will rise more slowly in the next one to three years. So do you think that, so one, do you think that we can afford not spending? So you're seeing a lot of debt restructuring, right? Between banks and individuals, you see a lot of refinancing, people getting in, basically kicking their can down the road for the the banks to perform and have the ability to to absorb more money, guaranteed money per se, like more of a reality of, hey, you refinance, we we restructure these terms. You may not get closer to your payment, but at least we can guarantee that we'll probably maybe get paid. It's just an interesting point because I think incomes, inflation is a gnarly thing because as soon as you start saying the word inflation, people start wanting more for their cost of living. They go to their work. They say, hey, inflation 6%. You gave me a 2% raise for cost of living. Yeah. That's technically a decrease in my salary. 
in my annuity. And, but let's say that the business does give it to them. All of a sudden they get a 7%. Now the business has to increase its cost per their product, then increasing the cost per the product. And then it's just this whirlwind cycle. So it'll be interesting after two reports or what is it? Three reports of six, 7%, what'll happen. I think a lot of people are trying to time it. Again, I think diversification is the most adaptable and secure thing you can do regardless. Um, that's why I have uh, kind of all sorts of different things that I, I always think you have to have a little skin in the game to even understand it. I just bought an NFT. Yeah. I just, I, I think it's part of the game. If you have the ability to do that for the potential high return, like you had said, your Bitcoins or whatever. Of course, I have areas in which I put money for that diversification. I know we've talked about it. What's your stance on the cryptocurrencies and the Bitcoins? I'm definitely not against them. The big thing in my position Technically, we can't give advice on them. They're not regulated by the SEC. I can go ahead and mention to people that I own or hold cryptos. I think there's a place for them. I don't think they're going anywhere. And they're exciting. I think they're changing. I think they'll change and have impact on a lot of industries, which I think is really cool. When I was buying that NFT, it was so novel. Like, just being in the MetaMask browser and being on the new internet, like the blockchain internet, I was like, what is this? And I'm like trying to convert my dollars to ether or whatever and there's gas fees it's like the the cost of the energy transaction i'm like what is this but i always rec i i do recommend people experimenting with these things going back to the idea of if you just keep narrow and you don't pay attention to financial literacy financial education you're missing the boat on a lot and i think from a standpoint of like adam is is saying just having a, a quick consultation or understanding just these fundamental things from a standpoint of compounding diversification while still you can once you get yourself secure in a stance where you have a, a buckets you just define the buckets you put money in the buckets then all of a sudden like you had said you start taking more risk understanding what you can and can't do i have a robin hood account i think yeah. it's fun to understand how the market in different industries and in different classes and different sectors all are affected with the modern times but yeah. As much as I love to tell people do their homework, read as much as you can, there are the the misconceptions out there. And another one that you and I have talked about with the Dave Ramsey scenarios. And one of the things that I just can't stand that he's willing to put out there to people with no ownership is that he talks about the fact that we should be able to invest in the S&P and expect a 12% rate of return, which in a real rate of return has, has never been long-term the case. And he just computes return different, right? He says that if this year the the market goes up 25% and next year it goes down 25% that we have broke even, which is very false. If we have $100,000 in the market and it goes up 50%, we have 150000 If it goes down 50 the next year, we're down to $75,000. We don't have the $100,000 that we had prior, and he doesn't compute rates of return that way. And that's, I get worked up on the fact that it's 100% just misleading because it's not how the market works. Right? It's a great example, though, of how growth upwards percentage-wise is, is oftentimes much harder than, like you said, 50% increase versus 50, 50% decrease. Yeah. Is It's easier to go down, for, for example, but keep going. Yeah, and that was my only point is there is just a lot of things out there to get people just on basic knowledge that 
is going to sound like it makes sense. His, you think about it, how many people direly listen to Dave Ramsey and any word that comes out of his mouth. And I work with a number of people that have that mindset that Dave Ramsey told me this, Dave Ramsey told me that. But I look into, be subjective, shoot holes in, in what you read and what you look consult, into. Consult with the experts too. Also, I think it's a great example of diversification of thought and knowledge as well. And I'm not just advocating for diversification. Be that generalist that's partaking in very contentious conversations, collaborative conversations. Me more than anyone, the, the, the top of this pound for pound was also utilizing you as an onset to contend um, with some of my thoughts. And I think the devil's in the details with a lot of things. It's, I think, going in as a fool and with some humility with learning more is extremely important. That's why I enjoy conversing with you on a variety of topics. We didn't even get to the economics of cattle or the cattle part. We can talk about that more at another point in time, maybe. I know you got to get going here, and I appreciate you coming on the podcast. I'm, I'm excited to release it and hear from the, the Bismarckians on on what they think or, and hear about it. Yeah, I appreciate you having me on. It was a lot of fun. I know you and I find a lot of rabbit holes, which might drive some people crazy, but yeah, definitely enjoyed it. How do people get in contact with you or find you, for an example, professionally, wrestling-wise, anything that they're trying to reach out to you for? I guess I appreciate the shout-out, but I was hoping that wasn't part of this. Yeah, anyone that that has my number, wrestling-related, it's on the Pack Wrestling website. I don't feel like I should just say my cell phone number on here, but... No, you should. um, It's fine. (laughs) LinkedIn? um, You have a LinkedIn? Yes, I do have a LinkedIn, I believe so. As long as it doesn't go inactive. Yeah, I do. <laughs> um, I suppose for anyone that, that doesn't know me, that's probably the easiest way, LinkedIn, Facebook, something like that. Sweet. Thank you. Yeah, appreciate the time, Peyton. 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 Time, Peyton.